Every day, the graduate student writers of astrobytes.org publish summaries of recent developments in astronomy. Then we sit down with recent astrobytes of our choosing and bring them together, sometimes in ways you wouldn't expect. We call it Astro Soundbites. I'm Kirsten Boley. I'm a PhD candidate at The Ohio State University, where I study the impacts of elemental abundances on planet formation and evolution. I'm Will Saunders. I'm a PhD candidate at Boston University, where I study the upper atmospheres of Uranus and Neptune. And I'm Sabrina Berger. I am a PhD student at McGill University in Montreal, where I study ways to calibrate radio telescopes. And I'm out here calibrating a radio telescope right now in the Okanagan Valley near Vancouver. Nice. You're listening to episode 58, Funky Fluids. In our last episode, we discovered that Alex may or may not be able to swim. So it only seems natural while he's not here to dive right into this topic. (laughs) (laughs) But first, what's the definition of a fluid? Sabrina, Will? Yeah. So, I mean, when you look up what a fluid is in a dictionary, it's a material that has no fixed shape and conforms to external pressures easily. It's pure pressured easily, I guess you could say. (laughs) So, But I think I learned what a fluid was growing up as just sort of in the basic sense as something that takes the shape of the container it's in, um, whether that be a gas or a liquid. So molecules that aren't as tightly bound together as solids. All liquids are fluids, but not all fluids are liquids, so we have to keep that in mind. It's interesting to think about the way we learn about fluids growing up in our science classes and how we think about fluids in astrophysics, because it's a lot less intuitive to us, or at least to me, I think, because we're only really used to, you know, the liquids that we can see and pouring ourselves a glass of water or taking a swim. Right. The liquids that we experience are only one of the many types of fluids out there. And in fact, in my work, we talk about fluid atmospheres in comparison to planets that have an atmosphere that isn't fluid. So like the moon has an atmosphere, but it's not fluid because there aren't a lot of collisions in the particles. So they're really on just ballistic trajectories. They go up and then they come down, the particles on the moon, or they get blown off. So that's the difference, fluid versus non-fluid atmosphere. Also, another example, you might think of a supercritical fluid which is past the critical point to the point where liquid and gas sort of no longer exist and kind of become the same thing. So in that sense, it's neither liquid nor gas, but it has properties of both. Yeah, isn't that like the interior of Jupiter? It has to be really high temperature and pressure. So anywhere you get those conditions, you will get a supercritical fluid. Wait, but well, I thought that the moon was described as not having an atmosphere. So you're just saying it doesn't have, by not having a fluidic atmosphere, that means you don't have an atmosphere? The term you're looking for is surface-bound exosphere. Oh. So everything with an atmosphere has an exosphere. The exosphere, the outermost layer, is where the collisions are lower than the mean free path. So on average, a particle will not collide with another particle because it will collide at a distance that's longer than the distance it's going to move. So it's on average not going to collide. But if you don't have a fluid atmosphere, you just have a surface-bound exosphere. So that's the case for most of the moons in the solar system, the exceptions being Titan, 
Triton, the moon of Neptune, actually has a really, really thin fluid atmosphere. And then you have some other weird moons like Io that's outgassing, but it doesn't have a fluid atmosphere. And Mercury also has a surface-bound exosphere. We're going a little bit into the weeds of atmospheres again. <laughs> no, but that's interesting. I've never heard such an in-depth description of uh, atmospheres in our, in our solar system before, honestly. Yeah, and I think this is really good information for me. So when I go and talk to other atmosphere exoplanet people, I can really be like, no, it's got an atmosphere. It's just, you know, not a fluid one. <laughs> yes, just be careful how you use the term atmosphere because some people will assume all atmospheres are fluid and some people will not. But anyway, I want to draw this back to the definition of a fluid. There are really, if we create broad categories, you can divide fluids into Newtonian fluids and non-Newtonian fluids. Again, we experience Newtonian fluids in most of our daily life, but we've all had experience with non-Newtonian. So what, what Newtonian fluids mean is that the viscosity is an inherent property. It's basically a constant that you can't change by shearing it, by applying different types of stress. So water is like a Newtonian fluid. Most of the things we think of, standard liquids or gases, are Newtonian. Non-Newtonian is the viscosity can change under shearing when you apply different stresses in different parts of it. A common example is oobleck, which is a suspension of cornstarch and water which people love to make, and you can make it at home with cornstarch and water. Look up a YouTube video. It's super fun. When you squeeze it tightly, it becomes a solid and will make a rigid form in your hands. And then when you let go, it slurps back into liquid and flows. I love seeing oobleck. Oh, it's super fun. Oobleck! <laughs> <laughs> Another example of a non-Newtonian fluid that we've all experienced is actually mayonnaise. It's what's called a Bingham plastic because it will hold its shape under low strain. Like when you scoop it out with a knife, it'll leave a little hole behind. But if you spread it, you apply high strain, it'll spread like a liquid. So it's pretty cool. So what are some examples of other things that might behave like a fluid? Yeah, so um, the most common example of things that behave like a fluid but definitely aren't fluids um, are granular materials. So these materials that have grain or you can think about sand as being a perfect example of a granular material. The physics of the flow of these materials is still pretty mysterious. There's this really interesting article that I read um, when looking up sort of things that behave like fluids but aren't fluids on the Rayleigh-Taylor instability in sand. Rayleigh-Taylor instabilities are, I think, one of the first things you learn about in your astrophysical fluids class or just in your fluids class in general. And they occur at the interface between fluids of different densities. So where the lighter fluid pushes on the heavier fluid and you have these like plumes that are formed or they're oftentimes called fingers. So it's when that instability changes from the linear to nonlinear regime that you get these plumes flowing downward and upward. The really tailored instabilities are super beautiful if you, if you Google them. And I actually hadn't thought about it this way, um, except when you know Googling around uh, and making sure that I understood Ray, Rayleigh Taylor instabilities well enough. Uh, but the Crab Nebula itself actually is a perfect example of Rayleigh instabilities in astrophysics. So it's where the pulsar wind nebula around the you know, stellar remnant pulsar um, is the less dense fluid that pushes on the supernova ejecta material. So you have a low density interior and a high density exterior? 
Interior of what? You mean the, so the pulsar wind nebula is the less dense fluid okay. compared to the ejecta. Oh, that's already expanded. Yeah, so I it's see. what's expanding into the, um, into space. So the granular analog of this in granular materials was explored in sand. And it was actually apparently one of the last major fluid instabilities that hadn't been seen in granular material, which is kind of interesting. It was elusive before the study. So basically they found that there are these lighter grains of sand that rise up through heavier grains and leave the, the finger-like structures that we talked about before. You see in the Crab Nebula, for example. Um, and it's not driven in the same way as a Rayleigh-Taylor instability in fluids. It's driven by this gas channeling. Less dense grains allow easier flow of gas than, than denser grains. And they reproduce the instability. Yeah. So you can look up the pictures and see these little bubbles forming in sand, which is really cool. Fabulous. That's so neat. I agree. So we can even consider grain as fluids. And when we often think of fluids, we think of water. So what are some ingredients to making liquid water as opposed to any other type of fluid? Well, liquids are pretty rare in space because they can't exist without high pressure, high temperature, or both. And water is actually a pretty great example of that. You need pressure to have liquid water. Otherwise, it's going to be ice, which is basically rock in space, or it's going to be gas, which is pretty useless in terms of you know using it for life. To create that pressure, Earth has an atmosphere, but you could also get the pressure from a crust, so you could have water trapped under rock. And so the another fun property of water is that it gets incorporated into the molecular structure of a lot of materials in a way that is not obvious. It's not like it's liquid inside the rock. It's like it's bonded to the rock. And I saw this great video on YouTube of a chemist extracting water from Epsom salt, which turns out to be about 50% water. So you think this thing is salt, it's solid, but actually it's 50% water, which is pretty cool. And this is one of the theories of how water was delivered to Earth. It was part of the molecular structure of asteroids and comets coming from the outer solar system that crashed into Earth and began to melt and become incorporated into the surface layers of Earth. And then there was also similar water locked inside of rocks under the ground that was upwelled through volcanism and through tectonic activity. That is so cool and right up my alley. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's some of the research that I'm doing is quite literally shoving water into magma. So hot rock. Cool. Is that the magma ocean? Thing? Yeah. I was just reading a paper on that this week. A fun fact, Earth has something like 10 oceans of water in the mantle, and they're obviously not liquid oceans. So it's just part of the structure of the rock. Yeah. We love some liquid in our mantle. <laughs> we, we don't, though. We really don't. That's kind of hard for me to visualize. Is it? It's like embedded in the material, right? Like you wouldn't, if you drill down, you wouldn't find no. any no. liquid, right? It's like embedded into the, the structure of the silicate. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Oh, okay. Super interesting. So let's get into some of these bites. We're going to hear from Sabrina first, who's going to be talking about how planets and their moons can behave like fluids. Sabrina, take it away. Sure. 
So the bite I'll be presenting today is called The Bigger They Are, The Smaller Their Moons, which is a bit hmm. counterintuitive, right? You would think that the bigger the planet is, the larger their moons, at least sort of at first glance of this problem. So this bite was written by Ben Kasese, and it's based on a paper by Miki Nakajima and others published in Nature Communications in 2022. So this is a simulation of Examoon's paper to help us determine where we should be looking for Examoons and what they might look like and how big they might be. Overall, the authors found that planets with masses even just slightly larger than Earth's mass, especially if they're icy, might be very unlikely to form moons. So this switches the intuitive shift in our mind that moons will form relatively easily for Earth-sized planets in a giant impact. Exomoons are really hard to detect, actually. So going a bit back into what exomoons actually are, we, we know a lot about exoplanets, but I think exomoons are just starting to emerge as a really interesting astrophysical object to explore. And there are actually no confirmed detections. There are a bunch of candidates, but it seems mostly limited by our telescope systematics. Just you have to really be able to observe these super, super small ships of light um, to discover exomoons, and even smaller uh, fluctuations than we need observed for exoplanets. Are these detections used with the transit method, or how are they getting these exomoon candidates? Yeah, that's a really great question. So the way that exomoons are detected is actually really similar to exoplanets. There are three ways so far that have been predicted to uh, observe exomoons. There's the direct transit detection, so the most common way that exoplanets are discovered. Similarly, a star's brightness will also decrease as a moon transits. There's also transit timing variations, so where gravity from the moon perturbs the planets in its orbit, causing planets to speed up or slow down in their transit. And there's also transit duration variations, so similarly, the moon's gravitational pull can cause transits that vary in their duration. If you're looking at light curves, to try to measure for one of these methods. It's going to be a very small variation, right? Extremely. And that's why there haven't been any confirmed detections, because we're really reaching the limit of what our telescopes can measure, and we need to have really good models for what an exomoon transiting or causing a transit timing or duration variation will cause um, or will show in, in the observation of the exomoon. We're lucky enough to have lots of NASA funding to send all these beautiful probes to explore moons in our solar system. So Jupiter's moons, for example, get a lot of attention because they're just so cool. And Europa is actually the most likely habitable location beyond Earth, thought to potentially host life. And Europa is the smallest of the four moons orbiting Jupiter and has a liquid ocean that may contain twice as much water as all of Earth's oceans combined despite being only a quarter of the radius of Earth. One of Saturn's mini moons, Enceladus, is often talked about in the media. It's one of the other popularly known moons in our solar system. Of course, we have Earth's moon, which hopefully we get to see every night, and is actually the most commonly accepted theory for how Earth's moon formed is through the giant impact theory. Or specifically for Earth's moon, it's called the Theia impact. So the object that hit Earth is called Theia, Again, Theia is roughly the size of Mars, and this giant impact phenomenon that happened to form Earth's moon is the subject of this astrobite. So all the simulations surround this giant impact way of creating exomoons. Besides impacts, what are the other ways that you can form a moon? So the other ways that moons can form other than giant impact 
that have been studied for exomoons are capturing the moon by gravity as it passes by the planet or using the circumplanetary disk left over from the planet's formation. This is what we think happened with the Galilean moons or Jupiter's moons. Although we don't go into those two formation mechanisms in this astrobite, the only type of exomoon formation discussed here is the giant impact theory, so which luckily we went into a lot in the last astro sound pipe. So there are a bunch of ways that moons can be created, generally speaking. How did mm -hmm. the authors incorporate that into studies of exomoons? The authors actually only looked at the giant impact mechanism for creating exomoons. And the way they did that was through smooth particle hydrodynamic simulations where they look at planets of different masses and compositions after impacts and see what kind of moons form. So smooth particle hydrodynamics simulations, or SPH, are mesh-free, which means that they don't require any connection between nodes in the simulation. Or said in a more physical way, sort of the coordinates of the simulation move with the fluid, where the simulations actually represent particles rather than distributions of those particles. The, the mass of each particle, the temperature, and the entropy are kept track of during SPH run-on on the collision, so the impact of the, the object with the planet. Unfortunately, we do lose some precision with these SPH simulations, but there is quite a bit of efficiency gained in this mesh-free simulation that, that makes up for the precision and still makes them very worthwhile. For this simulation, what they're doing is they know the exact parameters for each particle throughout the simulation, whereas the grid version or the mesh version is where you have some sort of grid with a certain number of particles. And instead of knowing exactly the parameters for each particle, you just average over it. So they're keeping track of what every single particle is doing in this one, correct? Yeah. What I usually hear described the maybe the older way, perhaps, of particle and cell code is how I've heard it, where it's the the cells become the smallest grid structure and everything within that is averaged together, as Kirsten said. So this seems like it's computationally more expensive, but probably more accurate, right? That's exactly the opposite of what they said in the astrobite. Oh, fascinating. It's, it's okay. more computationally efficient, but precision is lost. Hmm. Mesh-free is like less difficult to understand, but I, I don't understand why it would be less precise. The only thing that I can think of is if if they're not tracking a particular parameters, a lot of the time you'll see something gained in terms of like computation efficiency, but you're giving up something. I, I was thinking it depends on the number of grid cells, because if you had a million grid cells, but you had a thousand particles be much faster to keep track of a thousand particles than a million cells. But if you have a billion particles, then it seems much worse to keep track of a billion particles than a million cells. So it must be that the grid is a lot bigger in the number of grid points than the number of particles you're trying to keep track of. And that would make sense too, because maybe in the beginning when you, they started out doing these computations, it was less computationally expensive and they had much larger bins. And then as people try to get more precision, you start making these bins much, much smaller. And then you have a billion grid cells and a million particles. It's like, why are we keeping track of a thousand times more things than we actually care about? Yeah. And then you're like, okay, well, let's just track the actual particles. <laughs> So we're, we're sort of speculating at this point, um, but I think that at least gives me some intuitive understanding as to how this could be computationally 
less expensive. So all this goes to say, thanks to this really awesome SPH simulation that they run, they extract the most important parameter in determining what size or whether or not an exomoon will be able to form for a particular exoplanet, namely the vapor mass fraction. That's the relative fraction of the gaseous phase of the circumplanetary disk to the liquid or solid phase. VMF of 1, or vapor mass fraction of 1, means the entire disk is in a gas phase, whereas a VMF equal to 0 means that it's completely solid or liquid, so entirely condensed. Does it make more sense than the SPH? It sure does. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so a high VMF makes it harder to form a larger moon. That means there's more gas in the disk because of the drag force, right? The gaseous content is higher, then the solids in the disk will lose more energy and fall down to the planet because of the drag. So those materials aren't left to form the moon. The authors found that VMFs scale with more massive planets, so larger VMFs for larger planets. So there's some intuition in that, in that icy planets are more easily vaporized, so you can bring out the gaseous components more easily. And if a planet is more massive, then we also need higher energies in the disk. Overall, the outcome of the SPH simulations that predicted a VMF for a bunch of these simulations is that for rocky planets greater than six Earth masses, or for icy planets greater than one Earth mass, they found that VMFs are about one. So the entire circumplanetary disk is gaseous and it'll be really hard to form a moon through giant impacts. So this actually means that planets larger than Earth are much less likely to form moons, and if they're icy planets, then they'll have to be even closer to the size of the Earth to form moons. Just because, again, icy planets are more likely to vaporize and have that higher VMF. Do they take into account whether or not the planet is forming, or is it the planet has already formed, and then we're adding in this simulation for this giant impact? think they take into account only that the planet has completely formed because otherwise we could also probably have other moons being formed through the other methods that we described, like from the actual circumplanetary disk. So a Jupiter-sized planet cannot form moons from a giant impact. It's much bigger than six Earth masses. Maybe there's some way that this could actually happen, but at least from the simulations using SPH and the vapor mass fraction that these authors did, it would be relatively impossible or much, much more difficult. Interesting. Yeah, I think that intuitively that makes sense to me because in terms of having a giant impact on a giant planet, the the size of the planet that you would need to whack off some material would be huge. It would be massive. Yeah. You would need another Jupiter-sized planet probably or, or bigger to whack off enough stuff. And you'd have so much gas knocked out as well, that even if it didn't vaporize, it'd probably be a lot of gas causing drag anyhow. We might have to run a, a smooth particle hydrodynamics code to find out. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope not. Um, so the key thing here is that um, because there's more gas when there's a higher vapor mass fraction, those sol solids that come off of the planet during the giant impact will lose energy, and fall down to the planet, and we won't be able to form an exomoon, unfortunately. Well, thank you for bringing us that bite, Sabrina. And I think now it's time for our not-so-goopy <laughs> space oh, <no>. out.
So what do you guys think? I think I know what it is. Okay. I figured you might. I'll let Sabrina guess first. Do you really? I think it must be something fluidic. So I was thinking like a light pitter-patter on Jupiter, like some small little storm or a meteor shower. Those are the things, just the different frequencies. Oh, that's a good guess. I could totally see that. Well, sure of what his answer is, so... I'm pretty sure this is an updated version of the 5,000 detected exoplanets. What? Yeah. Yes. I knew that this was going to be risky because I was like, they made this years ago. Yeah, we played it years ago on the show. Yeah, I figured. So I was like, I think Will's going to know what this is, but I don't care. (laughs) It's pretty. So back in March, the exoplanet community finally discovered 5,000 planets. And this is the sonification of that. It's really cool. Similarly to some of our other sound bites, this one is a sonification done by Matt Russo and Andrew Santagita at System Sounds. As planets were detected and you heard one or two at the beginning, this is through time as we begin to detect them. Not surprisingly, with the advent of Kepler and TESS, we began to detect a lot more. So the beat started to pick up. Depending on the orbital period of the planets, that's what changed the pitch of the sounds. The higher pitched sounds had shorter orbital periods and the lower tones had longer orbital periods. That's no fair. Will had already heard that. I know, I know. It's not fair. (laughs) I think it's a great space sound. So thank you for bringing that for us. Thanks, Houston. For sure. We should get back into our next Astrobite. And next up is Will, and he's going to let us know where we might be able to find water and maybe a beach or two (laughs) on exomoons. Yes. So uh, another exomoon Astrobite. This one's called Liquid Water on Exomoons Beneath Sunless Skies. And this was written by Jana Stauer. The paper is by Patricia Javio Avila and others. And it was published in the International Journal of Astrobiology in 2021. A fun fact about the universe is there are about 100 million stars in the Milky Way and about 100 million galaxies in the observable universe. And we know there are 5,000 exoplanets detected, but we believe that most stars have planets. So there are probably hundreds of millions of planets in the Milky Way. But it also turns out that some planets don't have stars. We don't know for sure. We think. And we call them free-floating planets. How many of these free-floating planets have been discovered? Well, zero. (laughs) (laughs) But there are some confirmed free-floating brown dwarfs, and there are some candidates that might be on the border of the brown dwarf planet boundary. So we're getting there. But they're theorized they should exist, and they would be created when planets are ejected from their planetary system. Do they have any idea of how we would theoretically find these free-floating planets? I think it has to be direct imaging, which is why brown dwarfs have been detected and not planets, because planets emit so little light that it's really hard to detect them. It might be doable by microlensing, which is a rare way of detecting exoplanets. The problem with microlensing is you get it once when it passes in front of some distant object and then you don't see it again. So very tough to be in the right place at the right time. We're talking about free-floating planets, but how does the exomoon get knocked off with the planet? Does the exomoon form after the free-floating planet has been ejected? 
my suspicion is it'd probably be ejected with the moon because moons form pretty young in planetary systems because there has to be collisions as we've talked about in most cases so i think it would have to be with the moon but it might not be to go back a little bit there is a theory that this could have occurred in the solar system that we actually started with five giant planets and a neptune-sized one was ejected which coincided with jupiter and saturn migrating outward this is only one of many theories and theories of the formation and evolution of the solar system are not that well understood but in that case, I think whatever moons this thing would have had would have gone with it because the moons would have formed before the ejection would have occurred. That's interesting. Before anyone even considered whether or not life is possible on a free-floating planet's moon, someone asked the question, could there be life on a free-floating planet? And it's not a completely crazy question because you don't need a star to be warm enough to melt water. You could actually use tidal forces. So you still need a moon, but the tidal forces on the planet could actually warm the planet enough to melt water and create geysers and produce and maintain an atmosphere. It's actually not completely crazy, but it requires the right conditions. That's super cool. Is it easier to create life on a free-floating exomoon as opposed to a free-floating planet? Right. Well, they're both they're both hard. The trickiest thing is you really need an atmosphere for life. As far as we can tell, to get liquid on the surface, right? You need pressure. Atmosphere is the best way to do it. And a free-floating planet might have a primordial atmosphere. So, it might have had the hydrogen that the planetary system formed with. Remember, our solar system all formed from the same stuff the sun is made of, hydrogen and helium. But it was lost from Earth because Earth was not massive enough to hold on to it. And the solar wind stripped it off. But if you took Earth out of the solar wind, maybe it would be able to hold on to that. And so if you have hydrogen, which is pretty effective at keeping in heat, the planet wouldn't need sunlight. As long as you can figure out how to survive without photosynthesis, it's the tidal forces could heat it up. The moon would not have the primordial atmosphere like the planet would be made with. You need to create an atmosphere on the moon. Tidal forces can do it. Think of Io and Enceladus. All the friction from the tidal forces create not an atmosphere, but the constituents that could become an atmosphere if enough of it outgassed. And then the next step to go to life requires water. And that's where things get really interesting. When we're talking about this planet and exomoon, we're really talking about some sort of terrestrial planet with a small moon as opposed to like these giant planets. Yeah, that's what we're thinking of. Correct. In this case, the exomoon that has life doesn't need the exoplanet to have life because it's irrelevant, sort of. It's just there to go along for the ride in some <laughs> sense. But so the, the creation of water is where things get really interesting. Without anything to deliver water, right? Earth got its water from the outer solar system where it was still ice. It came in, then it mixed in and got melted, and the atmosphere kept it liquid. Without that mechanism, you could still form water. But here's how they propose doing it. You have to have an abundance of CO2. Carbon's pretty common in rocks, and you can get CO2. It's a very common compound. And it could form in the atmosphere from some of this outgassing. And you have to have some of that leftover hydrogen. Not a lot, but a little. And then the chemistry could be ionizing, breaking apart the CO2 and the H2 and recombining 
into H2O. But without a sun, the only source of ionizing radiation is galactic cosmic rays. <laughs> this is crazy. This is what they're proposing. You have a planetary system. A planet, a rocky planet forms a moon. They're ejected. They maintain a little bit of their hydrogen they started with and some carbon dioxide. And then galactic cosmic rays come into the moon without a star anywhere nearby and break the molecules apart. And you get the formation of liquid water that will then tr be trapped under the atmosphere. Okay, okay. <laughs> These galactic cosmic rays. Is there enough to provide enough heat or energy? I was also rendering that. Yeah, kind of. We have a good idea of the rate of cosmic rays outside of the Earth's magnetosphere, which is the space that is protected by Earth's magnetic field. We can also speculate what it would be outside of the heliosphere, which is the bubble in space protected by the sun's magnetic field because we have two spacecraft outside of them, Voyagers 1 and 2. So we have some good data on that. There is an estimate where they come from. I think it's from the center of the galaxy and all galaxies. The active galactic nucleus produces these particles, but some of it's not known. I feel like as the planetary field has evolved, it's branching out into more and more disciplines. Like I also saw an astrobite recently on dark matter, planets as dark matter probes, the cosmic rays and planets and dark matter and planets. Those are just the last things that I would have thought would have been in the same astrobite. I would have initially thought that the planet would just be frozen. Yeah. And then all of a sudden we're talking about galactic cosmic rays. So yeah. here we are. <laughs> well, so the thing is, the galactic cosmic rays break the bonds of the H2 and the CO2. But what it can't do is heat the planet. So the surface temperatures need to be above water's freezing point, And that's going to be done because of the tidal forces and a little bit of an atmosphere to trap in the heat. H2 is a very effective heat-trapping molecule, so you don't need a lot of infrared, and the H2 will keep it on the surface. So what they did is they ran simulations, of course, and what they found from tidal forces is in their four main simulations is you could get 1.35 degrees Celsius above the melting point of water, and you could keep the surface there with the right set of conditions. And then they varied the amount of cosmic rays. That was their primary knob to turn. And of their four simulations, one of them formed a bunch of water within 100 years. No way. And the other three took tens of millions of years to form the same amount of water. So not as effective. But what was so special about the one that formed water within about 100 years? It had a lot of cosmic rays. Oh, interesting. Like a lot. We love a good cosmic ray. <laughs> <laughs> well, some other things that were interesting about that particular simulation is the surface pressure was a little bit lower in that case. So it turns out that you want to have a less dense atmosphere so that the cosmic rays, I think, penetrate a little bit deeper. If we're talking about life, that would only cause an issue for creatures like us who don't really need those cosmic rays because we're delicate, right? Yeah. You know what a really good barrier for cosmic rays and basically every other kind of radiation is? Water, of course. 
I thought you were about to say sunscreen and I was about to be like, <laughs> no, no, no. Water though. So the cosmic rays form in the water, but then if there's life that forms in the water, it's basically shielded from the cosmic rays. But you know how people say meta? Like that feels like a meta thing. It's definitely not the metaverse. I'm 100% sure about that. It's sort of like a negative feedback cycle more than anything else. But anyhow, this is wacky in every conceivable way, right? But somehow it's just crazy enough that it might work or or maybe not. I don't know. But it's cool. It's way cool. And they did some some great simulations to try to identify whether or not this could be done. That might just be one of the coolest papers I've ever heard about in terms of life on a planet. That's super creative. Yeah. How do you even come up with an idea like that to even start a project? I, I don't know, but th there is discussions about this stuff in the literature. The first paper to talk about a free-floating planet that could have conditions for life was in 1999. So this has been around. People have been thinking about this and trying to detect them, of course. So... It's not crazy. Should we float our way on over to uh, some one-sentence summaries? I think we should. Since you went first, Sabrina, you want to start off with our one-sentence summary? Sure. Although no exomoons have yet to be confirmed, this paper shows that through the simulation of complex fluids, fractionally large exomoons for planets significantly larger than Earth are less likely. Nice. And well, the combination of galactic cosmic rays to create the chemistry for water to form and then tidal forces to keep that water liquid could create lots of liquid water on a rogue exomoon. Love it. Thank you. Let's get into some of these discussion questions. So planet differentiation could be considered fluid-like behavior. Thinking about this, how much do the timescales matter when we're thinking about fluids? For planets, I think this has a lot to do with the cooling timescale of the planet, right? As the planet cools and evolves after it's formed. I think that makes sense. The cooling timescales of planets is, what, tens of millions of years? Maybe hundreds of millions of years? Yeah, the cooling timescales definitely depend on planet location, right? Star. There's like so many factors that go into the planet cooling time, but I think you're right. In terms of timescales of forming liquid water from galactic cosmic rays, that's exceptionally long. I mean, Earth got all its water probably during the late heavy bombardment, which was a relatively small duration of Earth's history, whereas these galactic cosmic ray sources are slow. It would take forever. I mean, 100 years is, is ludicrously fast. Those were a lot of rays. Uh, a more realistic, probably hundreds of millions of years. Which kind of goes into our next question about how much does temperature come into play for these examples of fluids? So it seems like based on the fluid, we're seeing some temperature changes. In my bite, temperature didn't actually come into play very much. It was mostly about drag from the fluid on the solid materials. But I think in Will's bite, for sure, it sounded like temperatures are essential. I mean, temperatures are essential in predicting habitability. Right. Yeah, the temperature would have to be enough to keep the liquid water that were formed melted. It's definitely critical that they consider temperature in the simulations of the tidal forces. One thought that I, I just had now is, could you have a very salty water created and then you'd be able to maintain it at a lower temperature? There are thoughts that this could be happening on Mars or could have happened in the past. Very, very salty brines formed on the surface 
under the right conditions. And it would be just warm enough to do that on Mars in the most favorable of circumstances. It's an interesting thought. Yeah, salt is definitely one of those things that brings down the melting temperatures of basically most things that you would want to melt, like rock and water. When we're considering planets, what other types of liquids other than water could we expect? I think we talked about it a bit at the beginning with magma oceans and, you know, when materials are just so hot, they're in their liquid state. Even the core of Earth, for example, could have a liquid iron component to it. I guess temperature also comes into play in, again, in where it is in its sort of thermal evolution. And that will determine what phase the materials in the planet are in, whether it's like silicate melt in the mantle or liquid core, liquid iron core. But that's sort of more of the interior of planets versus thinking about the habitability in terms of fluids in the atmosphere and on the surface of the planet. One of the topics that comes up every time liquids are talked about, especially in the solar system, are the liquids on the surface of Titan the largest moon of Saturn, which are made of methane and ethane, which are, of course, toxic gases on Earth, but in the right circumstances on Titan, become surface lakes. And people have speculated that if liquid is what's really important to life, maybe not H2O, then you could get life of a completely different kind on Titan. But that's purely speculative. We have no evidence to support that, even though we're going to Titan to find out. I am super excited about Dragonfly, to be honest. I thought Europa was the most likely habitable location with its oceans under this frozen tundra ice layer. But you have to drill. Well, we are going to both, right? We got the Europa Clipper and we got Dragonfly. So we've got some exciting missions to both of these exciting moons. And of course, the famous fun fact about Titan because it has lower gravity than Earth and higher density of air, if you strap two cardboard boxes onto your hands, you could fly. Interesting. I really need to go to Titan. <laughs> <laughs> I need to live out this dream, and I would be fulfilled. Fluids and cardboard boxes just waving in the wind on Titan. That concludes episode 58 of Astro Soundbites, Funky Fluids. You can find the two astrobytes that we talked about today by checking the links in the show notes. And if you want to hear more, you can check out our other episodes. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Audible, and Amazon Music. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to keep your ears to the cosmos. I can see you doing that, Kirsten. Just like I'm visualizing now. Yeah, I, I would do it. Can I fly with you? Yeah, of course. We should just take Astro Sound Bites and go over there and just fly around. <laughs>